In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. It's the profession and vocation of poets and philosophers to get us all from time to time to pause and to consider the deeper questions. It's what they do. But in a season like what this world is all facing, we've suddenly been thrust into the vocation of poets and philosophers because now we're asking all sorts of questions that are a lot deeper than the ones that we're typically dealing with in calmer, more predictable days. We're asking questions again, whether we know it or not, about what's the point to life or whether there's anything or anyone behind this life. And if our answer to either of those two questions is yes, then we inevitably have to reconcile the question about, well, then what about all of this suffering that so many are facing, whether it's of a natural origin or a man-made origin? That's where we are, and that's what we're facing. And it just happens. And we ask those questions because it's natural to ask them. I almost hesitate to appeal once more to that novel that came back out in the 1940s, uh, Albert Camus' The Plague, uh, Sorry Not Sorry, as a friend of mine put it recently, when it comes to literature, literature can, can go places that few other things can, and in that novel the main character is a doctor, a doctor who treats the plague there in that North African city, his name is Dr. Rue. But another prominent character in the novel is a country priest by the name of Father Panelou. And he is known for his fervent faith, his fervent preaching, and whether you believe in God or not, or attend his church or not, any one of his sermons becomes a talk of the town at some point in its wake. And after one of those Sunday sermons, Dr. Rue gets into a conversation with another associate of his that they are collaborating on fighting this plague together, and his associate uh, just goes straight up with Dr. Rue and says, do you believe in God? And Dr. Rue says, no, but what does that really mean? I'm fumbling in the dark, struggling to make something out, but I've long ceased finding that original. And then Dr. Rue compares himself to Father Panelou, the priest, and he says, Panelou is a man of learning, scholar. He hasn't come in contact with death. That's why he can speak with such assurance of the truth with a capital T. But every country priest who visits his parishioners and has heard a man gasping for breath on his deathbed thinks as I do. Mightn't it be better for God if we refuse to believe in him and struggle with all our might against death without raising our eyes toward the heaven where he sits in silence? We could spend days unpacking all of those beliefs that Dr. Rue has that undergird his explanation for his unbelief. That if there is suffering, then there must be no God. Or if it means to believe, that means you ought not feel like you need to struggle against the things that, that take away life. Or even that in the midst of suffering, God is mostly silent. Those are all beliefs he has. He's not out to prove them, he just holds them, and they all explain his unbelief. And I don't put those forward to say that's where we're going in this sermon, but I do put him forward as an example of someone who is stuck in unbelief in a very credible way. And that's why I want to look this morning at a passage where Jesus is having an encounter with someone who is finding it hard to believe that there is order, but more importantly, that there is in him something more than meets the eye. 
And we're going to learn, as we hear of that encounter, four things about belief. We're going to learn about the struggle with it. We're going to learn about the path to it. We're going to learn about the point of belief. And then lastly, we'll consider what is the nourishment for it. The struggle with it, the path to it, the point of it, and the nourishment for it. So if you're able, wherever you may be sitting or reclining, that you might give your full attention to it, I wonder if you might stand to hear of this encounter from John's Gospel in chapter 20. Our central text today is from the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verses 24 through 31. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nail, and place my fingers into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put your, out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. This is the word of the Lord. Last week at Easter, we considered the encounter that Jesus has on the morning of his resurrection with Mary Magdalene and others. And between that moment and this moment, Jesus has made an appearance to his disciples in a locked room. They're afraid of being found out and hauled off and he just appears and, and shows him to them. And they tell Thomas, who was not there that day, for whatever reason, all we can do is speculate, they tell Thomas, hey, we've seen him. We've seen the Lord. And Thomas is not buying it. He says, unless I put my finger in his wounds, unless I see the scars, I will never believe. I just can't go where you go. I can't do it. It is impossible for him to believe in the moment. And, and what Thomas represents is also found at the end of Matthew's gospel. It says of some, they worshiped the risen Jesus, where others, some of them, they, they doubted. They just couldn't quite get their head around this idea that he, in fact, was risen from the dead. And, and Thomas is the one who, who has answered Jesus' call years before. He's, he sat at Jesus' feet in that interim, and then he's watched Jesus die. And he, he simply can't. He can't go there. He can't embrace what they seem to be so fervently convinced of. And his struggle is meant to be, I think, the first thing we're supposed to learn. That belief is a struggle, and that struggle is both real and natural. And it's somebody who agrees with that idea is none other than C.S. Lewis. The greatest exponent of Christian belief in the last hundred years he, in a chapter on faith in his book, Mere Christianity, was very honest enough to say this, if one thought the evidence bad, but tried to force himself to believe in spite of it, that would be merely stupid. No matter what 
love, loyalty, or allegiance that Thomas has for these brethren that he has um, lived with and suffered with and struggled with, no matter how much he loves them, he simply can't take this testimony on its face in his mind. He just thinks it's not enough evidence to put himself there because the evidence for him is insufficient. And therefore, Thomas is the poster boy for that kind of hesitation. But he's not, I'll argue soon, being thrown under the bus for it. There is something to his struggle, and he gets it. And you know what else gets it? It's somebody named Christian Wyman. Christian Wyman is a, a voice I've quoted to you before. He uh, grew up in Texas. He left his faith behind. He contracts cancer, and sometime in the wake of that diagnosis begins to re-entertain the possibility that there might be some truth in Jesus. But even after coming back unto faith, he is very honest when he says, just when I think I finally found some balance between active devotion and honest modern consciousness, all my old anxieties come pressuring up through the seams of me, and I am as volatile and paralyzed as ever. Wyman, in talking about his own experience of belief, I think is getting into the nature of belief in a sense. Look, let me put it in, in these more familiar and accessible terms. When I get on an airplane, I walk through the terminal and I hand my ticket to the agent and go into that corridor and buckle my seatbelt, I am totally at ease with what I'm about to do. I am confident in my belief that this plane will safely deliver me to my destination. And we take off, and I love that part. But as soon as the turbulence hits, something changes in me. I have a change of mind. And all of that confidence that I exhibited in the terminal and sitting there on the taxiway is suddenly evacuated from me. I don't have any new information. I knew there was a thing called turbulence. I knew planes go through turbulence. But somehow in that moment, my confidence has been undermined. My belief has been sacrificed in the wake of those feelings I'm now having, having experienced turbulence. Why am I getting at that? That sometimes the nature of belief, you can feel like there is a trap door opening up beneath you and you wonder if you will ever find safe and secure ground again. Lewis understands that too. Lewis, when it comes to the nature of belief, he kind of came to an understanding even after he believed also. In that same chapter he said this, I was assuming that if the human mind once accepts a thing as true, it will automatically go on regarding it as true until some real reason for reconsidering it turns up. In fact, I was assuming that the human mind is completely ruled by reason, but that's not so. The battle is between faith and reason on one side and emotion and imagination on the other. Whether it is riding on an airplane or reckoning with the idea that Jesus may be risen from the dead, there are all sorts of good reasons to believe but there are all sorts of experiences that might seek to undermine that belief in a heartbeat. There's a scene in that series that was out over a decade ago called Lost, where everyone who has survived that plane crash uh, finds himself in the middle of this compound and there's this button that they've heard they have to push every so often, a, a button that's on a timer, and if they don't push the button, before that timer gets to zero, allegedly this electromagnetic pulse will go out throughout the realm and uh, all sorts of calamity will befall them. And in the middle of that um, new practice that they've all kind of had to embrace, there's now a, a kind of a, a fight breaking out between some of those who are having to take responsibility for that and others. They're beginning to wonder if this claim that they need to push this button every so often is really true. And so in this scene, 
you see when people have certain things of value at stake in the midst of claims that they have to simply believe on the basis of others' testimony, well, you get to see that struggle in a cinematic but a resonant way. You do it, Jack. What? You have to do it. You do it yourself, John. No, you saw the film, Jack. This is a this is a two-person job, at least. This argument is irrelevant. Say it. Don't. Jack. Don't. It's not real. Look, you want to push the button? You do it yourself. If it's not real, then what are you doing here, Jack? Why did you come back? Why do you find it so hard to believe? Why do you find it so easy? It's never been easy! Maybe you should just do it. No. It's a button. I can't do this alone, Jack. I don't want to. It's a leap of faith, Jack. See, they're in that scene where everything is, is at stake, so they think. The question is, will you believe? And what we come to discover in a scene like that is that it's never been easy to believe. It's the nature of the struggle. And Thomas will show us, and Christian Wyman has showed us, and C.S. Lewis will speak to that. It's the nature of the belief that we go to. So look, David, or rather, Thomas in tradition has kind of been called Doubting Thomas. And that's just sort of the moniker he's earned or inherited. And yet, if you will look really closely between the lines here, yes, the struggle with belief is real and it's natural, but that struggle is something for which God has sympathy. That Thomas in this passage is not simply being thrown to the bus. You have to give him credit because Thomas is us. We moderns, we like to look at ancients and we like to say to them, y'all just kind of believed in all the woo-woo wacky stuff. You, you believed it so easily. And then you look at Thomas here and, you, and, and Thomas says to us, um, really? Not, not so fast, man. He didn't believe it on its face. So we give him a little credit. He's us. But we also have to give some credit to John, the man who compounded or compiled this account. He, he saw us coming. Of all the things that he might have included in his detailed account of Jesus' life and the ministry in order to persuade, he includes this one. He saw us coming. But if there's anybody that should be given credit in a moment like this, it's not just Thomas, it's not just John, it's God. Because God knows us.
God knows that faith, or rather belief, does not come naturally to us. That there's a struggle that's real and natural, and he has sympathy for it. How many times do we find Jesus saying to people who are struggling with belief, why are you so afraid, you of little faith? The struggle's real. But even in the struggle with belief, there's a path to it. And that's the second thing we learn. In this struggle, there's a path. See, Thomas gets this bad rap, whether he, he deserves it or not. But all Thomas gets and all he asks for is what the other disciples had already gotten eight days earlier. Eight days later, curious detail, we'll get to that in a minute. Eight days later, Thomas is this time with his brethren in that same place. It's a Sunday. The door is locked. Jesus shows, and he cuts right to the chase. He moves right past the pleasantries. Hey, peace be with you. But then he goes straight up to Thomas and says, go ahead, have a look. Put your finger here. Touch my wound. See the scars in my hands, in my side. Jesus is giving to Thomas what he asked for. And that is the second thing that we're about to learn from Thomas's life in his struggle with belief. Yeah, there's a struggle with it, but the path to it is an encounter with Jesus. This belief is, is not primarily about an argument. It is more than simply resting your life on the basis of certain proofs. It is certainly not a function of merely social pressure. The path to belief is something more. Look, um, next week, we're going to start gathering and, and talking about some of those deeper questions about why one might believe. We're going to let Tim Keller kind of set the table for us, and then we're going to let us all kind of talk about it and see the stuff that's hard to swallow, that we have a hard time chewing on or biting down on. But even though it will be helpful and profitable time to consider those reasons for belief, they will not be enough. They never were intended to be. What Thomas is here to show us is that the path to belief will always be through an encounter with Jesus. It will require that personal encounter with him of whom we're supposed to believe. It's not merely the acceptance of an idea, of a doctrine. It's an encounter with him. Frederica Matthews Green is a name I may have mentioned to you in the past. She's a child of the 1960s. She did her university days in that season. She found Christianity to be, at best, as she put it, infantile and inadequate. And so she, in response, went out believing in something called a life force. She would borrow from different traditions, mainly Hinduism and elsewhere. She comes to a point where she realizes she's kind of become, she's kind of crafted a, a Frankenstein spirituality, where she's just borrowed from everywhere and put it together, this thing that um, suits her needs and her world. But shortly after she gets married, she's on honeymoon with her husband in Ireland, and they're hiking outside of Dublin. And they see a church in the distance, and so they drop their backpacks, and she begins to kind of wander inside the church to see its quaintness and its, its architecture. And she notices this, this um, small side altar off of the main hall, and so she wanders in there. And there in that side altar, she sees a statue of Jesus. And there in her own words, without warning, she puts it this way. I can't really explain what happened next. I was standing there looking at the statue, and then I discovered I was on my knees. I could hear an interior voice speaking to me. Not with my ears, it was more like a radio inside suddenly clicked on. The voice was both intimate and authoritative, and it filled me. It said, I am your life. You think that your life is your name, 
your personality, your history, but that is not your life. I am your life. It went on, naming that life force notion I admired. Beyond that, you think that your life is the fact that you are alive, that your breath goes in and out, and that energy courses in your veins, but even that is not your life. I am your life. I am the foundation of everything else in your life. I didn't become a Christian because somebody with a Bible badgered me till I was worn down. I wasn't persuaded by the logic of Christian theology or its creeds. I met Christ. In that moment that she did not seek, that she was not anticipating, she comes into an encounter with Jesus. She comes to hear what in her mind spoke truth, that everything that she thought was the basis of her goodness, her identity, you might even say of her righteousness, none of that was real. He was the foundation of all things in her. And in that moment, she had an encounter. And she came to discover that the path to belief, while arguments and proofs and conversations have their place, none of them will be a substitute for an encounter with him. It's personal and it's real. In that moment that Frederica Matthews Green has and the realization that she surfaces, she helps us to understand not only what is the path to belief, but what is its point. And Thomas is the one that gets us there. See, Thomas, he realizes that belief is more than just the acceptance of a certain set of ideas or doctrines. There's more to it than that. The point of belief is the fruit of belief. And we see that in Thomas and what happens right after he sees Jesus' wounds and puts his fingers in those healed scars. The first words out of his mouth are, my Lord, my God. In that moment, Thomas is not merely fascinated with what he sees. Well, isn't that remarkable? And, and it's not just that his curiosity has been satisfied. Well, doesn't that close the loop on what I was thinking? He's, he's led to worship. That's the point of belief. Worship is where it leads us. And in that moment, Thomas is not so interested in what he might get from Jesus. He is mostly focused on who Jesus is and what is true of Jesus, and therefore what follows from that belief. But the nature of that worship for him, for him to cry out right after he's become convinced of who Jesus is, for him to cry out, my Lord and my God, in that moment he is not merely arguing that before him is the presence of perfection or divinity. He's reckoning with what Jesus' resurrection proves. And what it proves is two things. One, that in Jesus' love, there is something that is stronger than death. And that leads him to worship. But secondly, it leads him to reckon with what is now persuasively convincing to him of what his greatest need is. That his greatest need is in fact what came from Jesus' mouth, that we must be reconciled to this God. Look in our day, in this season, we are becoming aware, we are being exposed to all sorts of things that we believe that we didn't know we believed. And, and by that I mean the, the degree to which you have become fearful or angry about what you've had to release or give up on or be disappointed by or maybe even lose, the degree to which you have become ruffled by that and angry about it and perhaps even despairing is the degree to which 
you believed that those things were absolutely necessary. And that's nothing to be ashamed of. If anything, we give thanks for being illuminated of what we really have been trusting in and what we really have been setting our hearts and our happiness and our hope on. And, and it's nothing to be ashamed of in that regard. Even Jesus, he doesn't, he doesn't lambast people who are seeking what they might eat or what they might drink or what they might wear. Remember the Sermon on the Mount? He, he, he knows that we need those things. God knows that we need those things. Jesus is just there to say unto us that there is something greater that we must see. There is a context that's wider that we must understand. There is a need deeper that we must all grapple with. And that deepest need from which all other needs derive is the need to be reconciled to God. The love of God was already present before he sent the Son to die for us. And in fact, it's that love from God that compels him to send his son to us. That love was present before all of this happened. But surely what Thomas is reckoning with and what he's therefore worshiping Jesus for in that moment is realizing that that love of God is only known through believing in who this Jesus is. And that is the fruit of belief. That is the point of belief, to worship as he is worthy of worship. When you come to worship Jesus for who he is, you come to reckon with reconciliation with God as your greatest need, then you begin to see everything that you're afraid to lose or that you think you need with different eyes. And that sounds great. It sounds like something a pastor would say, but how does that really happen? And how is that whole idea even sustained in us? And that's the last thing that I think Thomas is out to teach us. What is the nourishment for faith? He had not gotten what he wanted. He wanted to be able to see. He only asked for what the other disciples had gotten. And Jesus is glad to give him what he sought because Jesus knows Thomas. And he says straight up to Thomas, look, stop disbelieving and believe. He, he knows that Thomas has an issue with what's going on and he, he is glad to give him what he wants and he, and he wants to bless him with what he needs in order to believe. And therefore, what that proves is that Jesus knows what Thomas needs, but Jesus also knows those who would follow Thomas and what they would need to. Because he says, right on the heels of Thomas's worship for the first time, he says, you believe because you've seen. Blessed are those who have not seen and have believed. Jesus is out to pronounce a blessing on those who have come to follow him, but haven't seen what Thomas has seen, but haven't seen what Mary Magdalene and Mary and the other disciples had seen. He knows that it's not natural to believe. He knows what we need, and that's why he gives to Thomas what he needs, and that's why he blesses those who would come after him. How are you and I gonna believe in a season like this when it's really hard to believe? How are we going to continue in the belief? How are some of you that maybe have never believed before ever considered the possibility of belief? I think, I think Thomas's story gives us just three things. One is to, like Lewis said, know the difference between reasons for unbelief and the emotions and moods that might accompany us, that might make us think that it's more than what it really is. Lewis made it pretty clear, and we're going to kind of get a running start to what he had said earlier, but he said this, Now faith is the art of holding on to things your reason has once accepted 
in spite of your changing moods, for moods will change. Whatever view your reason takes, I know that by experience. Now that I'm a Christian, I do have moods in which the whole thing looks very improbable, but when I was an atheist, I had moods in which Christianity looked terribly probable. This rebellion of your moods against your real self is going to come anyway. You can never be either a sound Christian or even a sound atheist, but just a creature dithering to and fro with its beliefs really dependent on the weather and the state of its digestion. <coughs> We're complicated people, and the way our reason and our imagination and our emotions all function, we'd like to say it's perfectly calibrated and perfectly predictable and always very efficient, but Lewis knows enough to tell us otherwise. He's not throwing emotion under the bus. He's not saying that all reasons for unbelief are a function of irrational emotions. He's just saying when it comes to belief, you have to reckon with the differences between reasons and moods, and reasons and maybe just desires that he not exist. That's the first thing, to reckon with the difference between reasons for unbelief and those moods that accompany us all along our way, all our days, whether you believe in him or not. The second is something that Christian Wyman helps us to believe from what Thomas told us. And that has everything to do with coming to give as much scrutiny to your doubts as the doctrines that they might be suspicious of. Sometimes doubt can be very self-serving. It can suit a particular end that you may not be cognizant of or want to admit. And so Wyman says, be careful. Be certain that your expressions of regret about your inability to rest in God do not have a tinge of self-satisfaction even self-exaltation to them, that your complaints about your anxieties are not merely a manifestation of your dependence on them. There's nothing more difficult to outgrow than anxieties that have become useful to us. There's a way in which we might put up reasons for not believing, resistances or apprehensions to belief that really aren't a function of our reason, but more of our will. And we have to reckon with that possibility too, even in the midst of our doubts. And that's why, as others have said, sometimes you have to doubt your doubts. Sometimes you have to give as much analysis and scrutiny to your reasons not to believe as your reasons to believe. But last, if we're to be nourished by this faith or in this faith, we have to understand what belief really is. And Lewis helps us in one other way at the end of that chapter. He says, one must train the habit of faith we have to be continually reminded of what we believe. Neither this belief nor any other will automatically remain alive in the mind. It must be fed. What Thomas tells us, what Christian Wyman tells us, what C.S. Lewis tells us, what our own experience tells us is, belief is not like a statue that you polish. It's more like a garden that you tend. And that is why at the end of Thomas's little moment here with Jesus, John explains why he wrote this whole account at all. He says, the disciples saw a lot more and a lot more happened that would be contained in this book. We don't have enough pages in the volume, but these things are written for you in order that you might believe. And by believing, have life in his name. These things have been given to us. He's given us his word to contemplate what happened to him, what was said of him, what he said himself. He's given us those words, but he's also given us his spirit, both to birth belief in us and to sustain belief in us. He's given us those things. He's also given us prayer. 
in which we cry out to Him, wrestling with all of our complaints, all of our struggles. We even have a prayer that we might model, that was given as a model to us by a father whose son was sick, and he cries out to Jesus for help, and Jesus says, I will, do you believe? And he goes, I believe, but help my unbelief. That's a gift, to be given the opportunity to address the one who's calling us to belief, to ask for that very belief that feels so elusive to us. He's given that to us. And he's given that to us personally. But he's given to us one last thing. He's given us each other. It's a funny thing, a funny detail that John includes there that eight days later, after the disciples see him, eight days later, Thomas sees him. Why say that detail? Because eight days later was Sunday. And they were gathered together. And there in the midst of them, Jesus joined them. And I think it might be John's way of hinting to us that where, they, where Jesus is sought, there he meets them. Where he is sought, there he is found. And therefore he has given us that community too. His word, his spirit, this prayer, and also each other. It's from those gifts that we have this life. Brothers and sisters and anybody that's looking in, we all probably feel collectively a little like the experience of being bleary-eyed wandering along, feeling a little disoriented and disheveled, bleary-eyed. There's a lot of people in this world for whom that experience is even more intense, that in that weariness and disorientation, they wonder if there's any meaning in this world, or they wonder if there's any solution to the guilt that they carry around on their backs like a burden, or they wonder if all the things that they might be afraid of, what they might lose, who they might lose, what might happen to them awake of this whole moment, whether there's anything that they can trust. And among those fears, the fear of dying. Jesus has given us these gifts that we might believe in him in this life, that this life might be a different kind of life, even in the midst of our struggle. Look, we may not be poets or philosophers, but we're all asking these questions. And with his help, we may believe. Amen.